In my imagination as a child, they were very real. I remember being up above the site where the blackberry bushes are, and it's crowberry, so it's low-growing bushes. And we'd be out picking berries, and I remember thinking, now, do you see those things coming? <laughs> and I remember we standing there, a bunch mm-hmm. of us looking, and scan the horizon and says, if we see the sails, we've got to make a dash for home. We can't go too far. Because if those sails <laughs> come over the horizon, we got to get to home. In some ways, I envision Eric being like some of my old relatives. You know, tough as nails, never say that, never give in and admit to You know, I find the stories fascinating because they're a glimpse into our whole human past. And you look at those sagas and you can still get evidence of the fact that they're human. They have the same sort of wants, needs, desires that we do. And that's what I find especially of interest. Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're looking at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In our Saga Briefs, we address things that turn up in the sagas that we then arbitrarily decide that we want to spend a little more time on. Arbitrarily? (laughs) Uh, We've got three or four of these in production right now because there are actually all sorts of things we want to talk about. Uh, But it can be tricky finding the time to actually finish one, especially during the academic year. We're both kind of buried under our work at the moment. But fortunately for us, this episode was already recorded some time ago. Right. Uh, I know we mentioned in the Greenlander Saga episode that John spent a couple of weeks this summer in Canada, making his way out to Newfoundland and the Vinland settlement site known as Lonsall Meadows. Now, I know I've said this a few times over the past few months, but I really recommend this trip for anyone who can get there. Uh, Newfoundland's a beautiful place, and Lonsall Meadow is a World Heritage Site for a reason. Well... I mean, aside from providing pretty conclusive evidence that Europeans landed in North America centuries before Columbus, it's also the anchor point for two sagas. Well, I think most people are probably more impressed by that pre-Columbus thing. But for us and for the sort of person who listens to this podcast, uh, the saga part's pretty exciting. Yeah. And before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about this trip and how it came about? Uh, okay. Uh, so I initially hoped to take this trip with you, mm. but you bailed on me. Yeah, well, you know I wanted to go. <laughs> we yeah. talked about it. You know, but I was finalizing my tenure portfolio and between that and the stress of the whole tenure process, it just wasn't going to happen. I know, I know. Uh I still say it would have been a great saga thing road trip, but I understand. Yeah, it would have been. So after you bailed on me, <laughs> I decided to make the solo trip up to Lanza Meadow. Uh and I reached out to the Parks Canada service to see if they might be okay with me bringing a microphone along. And asking the interpreters at the site a few questions. Yeah, I mean, we had been talking about this trip for a while, and we always thought it would be a cool thing to interview someone from the site. I don't know that we thought carefully about what we would interview them about exactly, but that's what we no, wanted we to do. No, we did not. 
But uh, we ha- what we had in mind then was an informal sort of thing, just kind of sitting down with someone and asking about the Vikings in North America and maybe getting a few pearls of wisdom about the archaeological dig that Helga and Anastina Ingstad conducted in the 1960s. Uh, yeah, that pretty well covers it. But uh, first, you had to get there. So, John, how was mm-hmm. the trip itself? It's hardly a hop, skip, and a jump for either of us. It was, it was amazing. Uh, it was a little hectic at first. I drove with my wife and kids for the first part of the trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we hit New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia over the course of a week. Uh, then I headed for Newfoundland on my own. You know, I have often considered ditching my family at a rest stop, but I've never actually <laughs> done it. Did you, like, uh, peel out somewhere near Halifax while they were in the bathroom or something? It was tempting, but no. <laughs> um, my my wife took the kids on a flight to Wisconsin to visit her family for a few days. Uh, well, at least the uh, the Newfoundland part of the trip must have been a lot quieter than the rest of it. It was, yeah. Uh, but Newfoundland is also just amazing to drive around it. I mean, I keep saying this to people, but it's it's like Iceland and Alaska had a giant island baby. What? The, <laughs> the landscape is beautiful, and there's a lot of it. A giant island baby? What are you talking yeah. about? You'd have to see it. I'd, I'd show you the pictures, but due to a complete motherboard failure on my cell phone, I don't have any. No, of course not. The The pictures that I sent you that went up on the Saga Thing Twitter account mm-hmm. and a few that I sent to my wife are the only ones that survived. Wow. So that's a total of three for me and maybe yeah, two for your wife? Yeah, and like another two for her. Wow. Anyway, that should be a lesson for you to back up your pictures on the cloud. Uh <laughs> Uh, no. I, I'm not even sure what the cloud is. Uh, and anyway, I tried. I tried backing up my computer file. It didn't happen. So okay. I don't want to get into that whole sordid tale. All right. So uh, you're driving through the giant Alaska baby landscape, I guess. <laughs> don't be snide. <laughs> what happened? So the drive up Newfoundland is over 450 miles. And this is after an overnight ferry trip. 450 miles of driving. And I took the western route on what's called the Viking Trail, which mm. uh, took me up through Gromorne National Park. The entire drive is pretty damn scenic, but the views all through Gromorne are really astounding. So the highway is called the Viking Trail. Yeah. I mean, now I really want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened after you uh, turned up? Probably looking fairly rumpled after over a week in your car. (laughs) Well, as we said, I was thinking very informally about maybe asking someone a few questions when I got to the site. Uh, Instead, I got a taste of the hospitality and friendliness that Newfoundland is famous for. Uh, from the first call I made, everyone I talked to was eager to help, and they actually turned this half-formed idea of me showing up and asking questions into a full-fledged interview opportunity. Now, before you explain that part, I, I just want to digress for a second to say that the Ingstads had a similar experience when they arrived at the Lonsall Meadows site. Um, mm-hmm. There were, I think, 13 families living in the community in 1960, and the undisputed leader of that group was a man named George Decker. Right. Now... Now, George is going to be important to our story for a couple of reasons. Uh, I want to actually read Anastina Ingstad's journal account of her first meeting with him. We hadn't been on land but a few minutes before we saw a small group of people come walking along the shore. A little yellow dog ran in front, followed by a man who looked to be in his sixties. He waved to us with his stick and yelled out something or other. Behind him followed a crowd of children of all ages. This was the first time I met the man who was to become our best friend in all the years to follow. George Decker. His whole stature radiated personality and authority. At first glance, he appeared rough, with his weather-beaten face and dark stubble. But in his deep brown eyes shone warmth and humor, and he was quick to smile. Right from the beginning, Helga called him Big Chief, a name which George liked very much and by which he came to be called. Now, who wouldn't want to be called Big Chief? (laughs) 
That's a great nickname. It really is. Uh, But the point is that the Deckers and the rest of the Lonson Meadow families just opened their homes up to the archaeological team, and it actually became part of the dig over the next decade. Absolutely. So when you visit the site, there are still people there who were around during the excavations, and they all remember the Ingstads with great fondness. Mm -hmm. And when you read the journals and the reports from the Ingstads and from Brigida Wallace, it's clear that they all came to think of Lonson Meadow as kind of a home. The result is a community that's embraced and integrated the site in a way that feels really natural and unforced. I really need to visit there. You really do. Yeah. Uh, but we were going to talk about what happened when you showed up. So tell us a little bit okay. about that. So, okay. Uh, I mean, I could wax rhapsodic about that trip for a while longer, but we'll get to business. Uh, so what happened is that several members of the Park Service went far out of their way to manage a connection for me with Loretta Decker, who's an officer with Parks Canada. She's also an expert on the Lonsa Meadow and Greenland sites. And as her name suggests, she's also the granddaughter of Big Chief George Decker. And as the interview will show, she's a pretty remarkable person with an intimate knowledge of Lonsal Meadows. Yeah, that's right. Um, her family owned the property on which the archaeological digs took place, so she lived through nearly every stage of Lonsal Meadows' evolution from an archaeological curiosity to a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah, she's led a pretty amazing life. She really has. Uh, I just want to say, I'll express my gratitude to Miss Decker and to everyone else involved who made the conversation possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interview was conducted in Rocky Harbor, which is a few hours south of Lonson Meadow, and the people there were tremendously helpful, too. They even helped me find a room for the night in town. That's very generous. Wow. All right. With that introduction, are you ready to do this? Absolutely. Uh, there isn't much left for us to do here. Hit the button. Let's get to the interview. Okay. Here we go. So I was actually born um, when the Inkstead excavations were ending and Mars Canada ones were beginning. So it was a real transition. The Inksteads had excavated all of the house sites and some areas around the building, but buildings, but not a lot. And when Parks Canada came in, they excavated the house sites again to confirm all the mm-hmm. information. And then they did some uh, areas at around, including the area in front of the buildings mm-hmm. where they discovered the boat building area. So having grown up in that, in that time frame, I heard all the stories about, you know, the Vikings, the raids, mm-hmm. you know, the, the blood eagle, the red and white uh, striped uh, sails. Right. And I can remember as a small kid sitting under the kitchen table because my father started working at the site when he was 16, Lord Decker. Gee. When the Inkstads asked for help, my grandfather said, okay, take him. He's the youngest one. Take Lloyd. So Lloyd worked at the site from his age time when he was 16 until he retired because of health conditions. Wow. And so he, he worked at the site and he, our house was filled with archaeologists and you know, plotters and excavators of mm-hmm. all types. And I remember sitting under the table listening to the stories. I'd be frightened clean to death. <laughs> Me and my sister and our cousin Jim, the three of us, you know, <laughs> under the table, trying to avoid being found because we wanted to hear what they were talking about. And, and while they're talking about blood eagles all, and all people stuff. being beheaded and oh, all, yes, all those things. And of course, our family sharing ghost stories, you know, the French mm-hmm. and, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. And I remember being up, and I wish we could be at the site, I would show you, be up above the site where the blackberry bushes are, mm-hmm. and it's crowberry, so it's low-growing bushes. And we'd be set as kids to go pick berries. And there'd be, you know, 10, 12 of us at least. And we'd be out picking berries, and I remember thinking, now, we see those sails coming. <laughs> and I remember, so we standing there, a bunch mm-hmm. of us looking, and scanning the horizon and says, if we see the sails, 
we've got to make a dash for home. We can't go too far. Because if those sails <laughs> comes over the horizon, we got to get to home. Because look what they did. Yeah. We couldn't understand. We were too young to understand right. the, the era and the time frame. Right. And we couldn't understand that it could live in those little low mounds. But we knew <laughs> what they were. We knew about right. the Vikings. And Jeez. we were afraid of them. We were, you know. Yeah. Hey, you share that experience with three or four hundred years of Europeans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you see exactly. the sails run. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, the quotes about the Vikings overwintering. Um, I really could feel mm-hmm. feel for them because yeah. in my imagination as a child, they were very real. It's very exposed. When you're up in the hill, you can see way, 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 way out in the distance. You can see uh, over to Labrador. You can see the the Belle Isle and some mm-hmm. other islands in the area. So you can see for vast distances. When you're down on the site level where the buildings were built, the same thing, really. Mm-hmm. You can look out across the Labrador. You can see distinctive colors with different vegetation on a good many days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always windy. And you have those raggy, uh, rough, craggy cliffs uh-huh. like you'll see in Greenland. Uh-huh. And in fact, when I was in Greenland, it struck me that the really only differences between Lancer Meadows and Greenland was that Lancer Meadows has some stubby, evergreen growth around mm-hmm. that, that whole site, mm-hmm. and whereas Greenland did not. Right. Um, same plants, very, very much feels like that same mm-hmm. physical environment, so very similar to what you'd see in Greenland. So does that explain the choice of that site then? I mean, because you know you sort of look at the site itself, and if it, it's so exposed and it's so, uh, it's going to be brutal in the winter time, and it's uh, I'm sure it is still brutal in the winter time. <laughs> I happen to be visiting in so August, not. which is lovely. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, you know, other sites that might be more secluded, might be more protected, um, maybe wouldn't have that same feel. Or <sighs> that may have been some of it. I mean, I think there's a certain comfort level in. Having that same landscape and climate, mm-hmm. you know the animals, you, you know how to interact sure. with the landscape. But I think part of it, in, in a strange way, was security. Because mm-hmm. as you come into the, the fjord, mm-hmm. the you know, uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence, they probably never realized that it was a gulf and not a fjord. Right. Um, this is sort of the first point of land you hit. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of your, your base camp, your pit stop. This is where you can set up, you can uh, develop your camp, your gateway site, mm-hmm. and then you have the rest of the, the territory to hop off from there to go out to. And it's also pretty easy to find for for ships. I mean, when you come into the Straits, you can't avoid seeing the Strait of Belle Isle. You mm-hmm. can't avoid seeing those other islands, um, Warren's Island, Great Sacred Island. There's a ton of landmarks in that area there that would be easy to describe and easy to find again. So it's a fairly forgiving site then for the navigation of the time. Oh, the, for it's sure. It's going to be hard sure. to miss. It, it would be tough, yeah. really tough yeah. to miss. Because uh, if you look at a map of Newfoundland, the Great Northern Peninsula, it's right out there in the middle of the ocean, right. you know, sticking right out like a tongue. So they would have had to find it. Which which leads me to the next question, the yeah. obvious question. So why did it take us so long to find it? <laughs> <laughs> because, well, of course, things in Newfoundland. nobody knew where it was for, what, 900 some odd years. Um, for sure. <laughs> I, I think the grapes mm-hmm. were the thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, the grapes, the whole idea of grapes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know there's a number of theories about that, and there's been debate over the years, and, and I actually grew up in the middle of that debate over mm-hmm. grassland versus vineland and, you know, those things. Um, but I think because of the grapes and knowing that grapes would have not, not grown any further than, mm-hmm. you know, Maine, maybe New Brunswick, with the riverbank grapes that mm-hmm. eliminated the northern edge of Newfoundland, right, right, <laughs> pretty quickly, right. <laughs> but uh, you know, but that's where that's where it is. And I know they would have easily have found grapes, but they would have found grapes as a a consequence of actually going further south, right, and going deeper into what they thought was that fjord. Right. Now, the Ingstads actually refer to this, that things like nuts and grapes and so forth are found on the site that would have come from much further south. You know, I think when I look at artifacts, I try and make them make sense based on human behavior. Uh We're not going to try and make things more difficult for ourselves. (laughs) You know, so on on the site at at Lansom Meadows, there were a number of butternut fragments found. Mm -hmm. And there was also um, um, a butternut uh, burl. Um, those butternuts grow, for example, in the Miramichi area of New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And the butternuts and the riverbank grapes both ripen in late August. And in the sagas, they talk of cutting down grapevines as mm-hmm. a cargo. Probably what they were cutting down was, you know, spruce, fir, birch, whatever is oh. growing down there. But the riverbank grapes grow up those trees. Oh. And if you don't actually have in in depth first hand knowledge of what grapevines and grape trees look like, right. you may not realize or understand that you're cutting down a spruce or fir that just happens to be loaded with riverbank grapevines. Right. You know? huh. And I've never had fresh riverbank grapes, so this is second hand knowledge. <laughs> but I've always been told I've seen lots of photos of them, I've always been told riverbank grapes don't make good wine. Oh, yeah. You know, it's been compared to, you know, your 325 screw off the cap university vintage. <laughs> the mad dog. <laughs> They're dry. <laughs> They're dry. They don't make good wine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I don't think um, good wine as much as alcohol content mm-hmm. may have been their primary concern. <laughs> <laughs> and you can make alcohol content. <laughs> <laughs> they will right. ferment. They will I, ferment. You know, and, and the butternuts themselves are fascinating because, of mm-hmm. course, um, Nuts would have been valuable as as a right. fat source, right? But the shells themselves make great dye. You'll get a very deep, Is that true. Yeah, you'll get a very deep, rich brown dye from butternuts. Huh? I accidentally <laughs> discovered that it's it's already <laughs> traditional knowledge, but I was aware of that. Somebody brought in a, a big bag of butternuts for the site, mm-hmm. and it, they were really dirty. And I said, "Okay, I'll wash them first. And that way, you know, we'll let them dry, then we'll put them in the huts. And the sink, the whole sink, the, my hands, the water, everything turned brown. Because they really do make good dye. So they would have been valuable for that. Sure. Well. And yeah, um, I don't know if you've ever dealt with butternuts, but you have to process them in a certain way. And they would have essentially been boiled for the fat. And the fat would have been scooped off the top. Oh, I see. They're very hard to crack, unless you have a special technique. Like going to the supermarket and picking it up. And- <laughs> <laughs> Our technique was involved basically in a hammer. <laughs> right. You hit it with butternut mush. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> So 
So this is this is actually the story of uh, a married couple, yes, uh, the Ingstads, yes, right, and how they discovered the site. Uh, tell us about it. She was actually the trained archaeologist, Anastina, mm-hmm. and he was. I, I I always say he was a Renaissance man. <laughs> he was a lawyer. He had been a governor uh, for this remote island for Norway. He had been a trapper up in the high Arctic, you know, living with the Aboriginal people and trapping with his own dog team. So he had done many, many things. Oh, wow. Um, he was especially interested in finding Vinland. Mm-hmm. And he read the sagas. He studied the sagas. He studied um, the Skult map. Mm-hmm. And he said it would have been the Northern Peninsula of Newfoundland. That was his theory. So, so he, he, he worked that up before he even started doing site work. He did. Wow. And, I mean, they had excavated in Greenland looking for the type of thing that they would mm-hmm. potentially find in, in you know, Vinland. Um, and she was very methodical in her research. And mm-hmm. there's lovely photographs from their collection of, of some of the things they found mm-hmm. in Greenland. But they came to the Northern Peninsula of Newfoundland. And they started asking in various communities if anybody knew of any old ruins. And my grandfather, George Decker, lived in Lansing Meadows, and a cousin of his in another nearby community said, well, go to Lansing Meadows and talk to George Decker. They were very patriarchal. And grandfather, our family was the first-year-round settlers. Grandfather was sort of the, you know, the chief of the community. You guys were the first ones. First ones. Wow. So he, anybody coming in would have to go uh-huh. sort of, you know, talk to grandfather first. <laughs> so when they came in, according to what, you know, my family's story, when they came in, he said, oh, yeah. I know where that is. Follow me. Went up over the hill to our pasture line and said. <laughs> just just casually. Here it is. Oh, right. It's yeah. right here. Yeah. Now, we always, in, the, in our family, they were always called the Indian camps. Mm-hmm. Now, there were Aboriginal people there before the Norse. And again, after the Norse, but right. no one in that same time period for about, you know, three, five hundred years or mm-hmm. so. A, a gap there. So, when the Inkstead saw it, as, as he said, you know, it could have been a number of things, mm-hmm. but he had a feeling that this would would be the right thing. Wow. They were very damaged and fragmented mm-hmm. because, of course, the, all the longhouses had burnt right. in the Viking period. So, yeah. But as they started following the shapes, they could make out doorways, make out walls, see individual rooms. Mm-hmm. And when did they start excavating, of course, they found the layers of sod, sand and gravel in the middle, evidence of benches, the central fire pits. And right. then they started coming up with actual Norse artifacts, like the bronze pin. Yeah. I mean, the bronze yeah. pin was, you know, definitive proof. Right. That this was a uh, base camp. See, this is this is tremendously gratifying to me because I've, <laughs> on the site before, I've made the comparison of uh, the Wetus, uh, the longhouses of the Northeastern American yes. uh, Aboriginal people. Yes. Uh, and Viking longhouses. Yes. And that, that they look very similar. They do. And they have a kind of very similar structure. Yeah. And not everyone has agreed with me that that's a, <laughs> uh, that is a, a comparison to make. So I'm I, very glad to hear <laughs> that you can, that looking at admittedly a very degraded site, you, you can, you can sort of see where it might be one or the other. I think you give human beings the same sort of climate conditions, the same sort of natural resources, they're mm-hmm. going to come up with the same solution, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the solution is in that case, um, about four feet of peat, about two feet of sand and gravel in the center, a central drainage, about four feet of peat again. And it's occasionally tied across through mm-hmm. the sand and gravel so the two walls are connected. Mm-hmm. The posts for the roof are set right into the sand and gravel, and the layers of sod go right on top of the sand and gravel, and that's sort of the built-in drainage system. 
So when it rains, water runs down the pitch of the roof right. and goes into the sand and gravel core of the wall. And the sand and gravel core of the wall conducts that to the ground, but it also absorbs moisture from the sod in the walls when it's very wet, and it releases moisture back to the sod in the walls when it's very dry. Mm. So it keeps the sod in the walls relatively healthy. Huh. So, you know, you'd expect, you know, 15, maybe 20 years. Yeah. You have uh, three halls. There was likely three ships at the site at one time. One hall was quite large. It was the biggest by far. And that was probably Life's house. Mm -hmm. So he's the, the head of the expedition. He has the biggest house. One in the middle of the of the complex actually is smaller, and you know maybe a captain didn't stay there, maybe they did. You know it's debatable. And then you have another series of longhouses, some outbuildings mm -hmm. right on the other end. For the most part, you had you know young guys who were hired to come here. Yeah. They wouldn't have been wealthy people. But right. Even life himself wasn't super rich, right. and uh, it was it was a logging camp. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's what it turned out to be. It may yeah. not have been the the intention in the beginning, although I do think it was. Well, certainly Iceland and Greenland, both places where uh, a ready source of lumber was worth sweet and gold. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you've been you've been to Iceland and Greenland, mm -hmm. both of the places as I've been, and uh, you know, I'm struck by a lack of trees. Yeah. Now, in Lance and Meadows, there's no tall timber, but you just go around the bay, right, and you'll get spruce and fir of, of considerable size. Sure. Um. So yeah. You come here, you, you work for a couple of years, mm -hmm. you fill the boat with timber, and you, you bring it back home. Well, and that's Greenland Saga says right away, right? I and, mean, look with Freitas. Freitas and her husband First burning. First thing she does. Freitas and her husband burning her, 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 mm -hmm. her timbers mm -hmm. for the for the house. Yep. So that was a crisis in her life because <laughs> what, what how are you going to build a house now with right. timbers? Right. Because even though the type of sod houses that they built and you know started to build in Iceland mm -hmm. and, and moved on into Greenland building, require a limited amount of wood. You still have to have those big timbers to hold up that roof. Absolutely. And you still have to have considerable size sticks to be the frame for the roof underneath before you right. place the sod on. Well, and that's, that's even without considering if you want a ship, right? if you want to maintain your ship. If you want firewood. Yeah. If you want tools. Yeah. Because you have to have the handles for the tools. Mm -hmm. And now, on the site, they've actually reconstructed some of this. We have. We've reconstructed them many times, in fact. Well, right. That's what I was going to say. It's, maintenance on these has to be constant. It has to be mm -hmm. constant, but it's constant in part because of our own problems. Ah. We, in in the beginning when they were built in 1972, we had, you know, um, engineering blueprints to follow. Mm -hmm. And we used cement for the bases. We had all the poles set in cement. And it was very, very engineered. Mm -hmm. Well, natural material doesn't respond well to engineering. <laughs> so, you know, uh, this, we had cement in the, in the middle of the walls where mm -hmm. it should have been sand and gravel. Of course, the sod cakes. Uh, it just bows out because it's not getting that moisture transfer. Right. And, you know, so we have had to make some changes over the years to how we have built the buildings. You have, be, you have to be a bit humble and realize that they knew what they were doing and you don't have to improve on it. <laughs> no, exactly. And you have to realize that these are temporary structures. Mm -hmm. You can't say I have a sod house still standing from 1972. Right. Because they can't stand that long. 
Right. You have components from 1972. <laughs> you have the foundation from 1972, but, you know, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And we also learned a lesson that I was expecting to learn. For years, we had the open hearts, the wood fires in the middle. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, for, for various reasons, one of which our staff were getting smoked to pieces, <laughs> we switched to propane. Oh. Well, when we switch to propane, all of a sudden you don't have that all that soot being produced by the fires. Sure. And because you don't have the soot being produced by the fires, you start to get mold. Oh, gee. And you get rot. The rot picks up. Uh-huh. It happens a lot faster. So now we have to have you know after hours maintenance fires with real wood and lots of smoke to <laughs> to resolve that issue. Again, they knew what they were doing. Right, right. As you said, you put people in the same conditions with the same materials, and they're going to come up with the same solution because it works. And for years, when we were there with the wood fire, you had to sit. You couldn't, when you get up and start walking around, you stirred up the smoke. Mm-hmm. So when people would come in, on most days, we'd invite them to take a seat and mm-hmm. hope they'd sit quickly because <laughs> the smoke is just above <laughs> your head level when you're sitting. If you're up walking around very uh-huh. much, you're stirring the smoke up. <laughs> Jeez. But, so, you know, it's 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 part of how they live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when it comes to recreating this stuff, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, archaeological stuff that goes into this. Hmm. Um, now, does the saga material enter into it at all? Or is, is that just sort of something that exists <sighs> alongside the site uh, and doesn't really inform the attempts to rebuild the site? Well, a bit of both, maybe. Mm-hmm. In the, we have tried to recreate the buildings as we expected they would be mm-hmm. for, for the purposes they are defined as having in the sagas. They're sort of temporary structures. Mm-hmm. They're probably only there for a couple of seasons at a time. And then it's a long period of being away. Mm-hmm. So we have the ones we've created, we have done them in the way that the archaeology on the site says they would have been done, mm-hmm. with also some information from the saga saying that these wouldn't have been elaborate halls and, and right. big chieftain buildings. They were relatively humble structures. Mm-hmm. Um, only the main rooms had wood planking on the walls, and they would have been relatively simple. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a bit of both there. Right. Well, because the sagas suggest that there's housing for, but in, Green, in the Greenlander saga, 100 people? Thereabouts uh, in Eric the Red Saga, even more than that. Uh, well, and the site is a little bit more contained than that. I mean, I, I we mean, haven't or, reproduced everything, right? We've only reproduced the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, we've re- reproduced essentially what was the first building built on site, which is now um, it was a temporary structure. It probably we've never even had a roof in the in the original. Mm-hmm. We actually had to have a roof because of our own, you know, um, uh, modern standards for construction. Sure. We have that one, and we have the slave hut. So we have one group of three. Probably, the sagas probably exaggerated the number of people that could have been housed there. Maybe anywhere from 60 to 90, Mm -hmm. and that includes floor space. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, part of our modern sensibility is that if we're camping, we're not all bundled together in a tight group. Right. You know, you have your own personal space, buffer zones. Right. I don't think that would have been part of what they were considering. No. And there's also lots of debate about, of course, how they slept. Did mm-hmm. they sleep sitting up? Did they sleep fully reclined? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that. Right. And how you'd actually prove that, I don't know. 
<laughs> but definitely the floor space would have been used. Mm -hmm. And we just finished last season the slave hut. Mm -hmm. And it's the one that's sort of pear-shaped on the original site. Um, that's just been done. We don't have it set up yet with all the material inside of it yet. But that one is particularly interesting to me because when it was found, they were debating about whether or not this was a, a sheep pen or, you know, mm -hmm. an animal's enclosure. But in the original site, there were stone slabs at the back wall and a fire right in front of it. So you're not having a fire right. when you have. But when you go down to the site and you look at that yeah. room and see how tiny it was, <laughs> you know. But so we have, yeah, we have taken information both from the mm -hmm. sagas, but also from the archaeology. So you're we, saying my chances of finding a uniped. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you could you could do self-service uniped. That'd be great. There is a sword there. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be disappointing to me not to go all the way out to Los Meadows and not find a uniped. Um, <laughs> You guys have, I mean, there's other things going on as well. I, mean, I know um, when I was reading up on the site, um, a few years back they had uh, a recreation ship yes. that actually sailed across the ocean <laughs> and made it to the same site. Several. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's, ha we, we, you know, we've had the snoring. Yeah. And in uh, 2000, I think there was 10 ships that came from various places in wow. Scandinavia came to the site for the 1,000th mm -hmm. you know, anniversary. Mm -hmm. Um. And there's always, there's always yeah. some sort of project that's happened over Scandinavia. One of my ambitions, because in visiting Bradley and realizing, you know, the connections that were there, one of my ambitions is to have an iron pot made at Lansing Meadows, donated to Bradley for their fire. <laughs> do you guys have metal working on the site? We do. Oh, wow. We do. We have a Viking Age trained blacksmith. Um, and he gets the visitors involved in it. And, you know, uh, at the site, we know they were making nails. Mm -hmm. They were smelting iron mm -hmm. from the, the bog iron. It may have been just a, an experiment to see if they could get it to work, but it was definitely a technology they were using. That's mm -hmm. how they were getting their iron. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do have abundant black uh, bog iron ore at the site. Yeah. All around where the, they were building the mm -hmm. buildings. Um, all along the perimeter of the brook. Is he actually using bog iron from the site? We can't take it from the site. It's UNESCO World Heritage sure, Site. Sure, right, yeah. right. But right. we have had special events where they have used, where they have uh, done the smelt. And in fact, in the exhibit, you will see piece a piece of um, um, a bloom from a smelt mm -hmm. about, I guess, five years ago now. Wow. Where they produced iron and they had the slag running. And, you know, you could see yeah. in real life how this looks. And you can look at the artifacts and say, yeah, this is like pretty close. Jeez. It's almost like you're running lead in some case. You know, it's yeah. molten rock, bits yeah. of iron, essentially glass because of the molten sand. And, you know, it's all bubbles and mm -hmm. moves. And, yeah. So quite interesting. Yeah. Well, and we've got a number of descriptions of what one of these, the bog iron smithy would have looked like. I mean, mm. um, we were talking about Ale Saga before we started recording, mm. but uh, Ale's father mm. establishes a smithy mm. and, and uh, brings up uh, his gigantic stone that four men cannot lift <laughs> right. and uses it as sort of the, the, the anvil for his smithy. Yes. Uh, so we actually have some idea as to how that process would have mm. worked and what mm. it would look like mm. and so forth. I think that's great. In Lansing Meadows, this, uh, it was a, a pit building. Mm -hmm. It's actually dug right into the side of the hill. Yeah. 
and then it's just a, a roof on top and it was open in front. Now in the re reconstruction, of course, we don't have the side of the hill, but we've done our best to recreate what it would right. look like. And again, um, we have um, in the in the original site evidence of where they had built the stone kiln and had mm -hmm. lined it with clay and, you know, where the channel was cut for the slag to run out and wow. all that stuff. So lots of fascinating things. Yeah. And of course, it's across the brook from the rest of the site. You actually have to cross that little, that little bridge that we have Which there. makes good sense when you're messing with fire. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> it's yeah. like the old idea of putting the kitchen in a separate building yeah. from the rest of the house. Exactly. Right? It's, it's, it, this makes good exactly, sense. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, we do know that the large halls burned. Mm -hmm. And they burned when the wind was blowing from the west. Great wind to get out of the site. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's lots of debate about why they burned, how they burned, who burned them. But looking at the buildings and knowing that they were cleaned out, mm -hmm. any, anything of value was taken, I'm on the side that they burned them saying either when we come back, we have to restart, right. or we're never coming back and no one else is using these. Mm -hmm. you know, so... I don't think it was an accident yeah. for all the large houses to burn, the halls to burn, and the small outbuildings to yeah. not. Well, in both the sagas, and again, you know, to whatever yeah. degree we can trust the sagas, mm. again, you know, unicorns. Uh, but there's, they both suggest that they leave under difficult circumstances. Exactly. Um, which, of course, you know, in some ways shows better sense than other European settlers <laughs> who came later, where you sort of look around and say, you know, we're outnumbered here and they don't yeah. want us. That's the no one go. else using them part, right? <laughs> right. That's right. the no one else, that's no one else benefiting them from the part. Mm -hmm. And in the sagas, it seems that they create their own problems yes. because they attack mm -hmm. uh, you know, people yep. sleeping on the tree under under the canoes and, and, and kill them all but one. And, you know, when I was a, a good many years ago, I actually asked an archaeologist, so does this sound like something they would do? Does this sound like, why would they... Burning the buildings? No, why would they kill oh, oh. people sleeping under a canoe mm -hmm. when... They weren't being attacked. They could have passed on by mm -hmm. and probably never had a, a significant encounter with them. And her response was, yeah, it, that probably would be. Mm -hmm. And her explanation at the time was, it may have been a test. Because, you know, if you kill someone with an iron, to iron tool, mm -hmm. that proves that they're not, they're mystical beings or mm -hmm. supernatural beings or, you know, actual humans. Mm -hmm. You kill them and say, oh yeah, well, that's a human. Okay, so we know what we're doing with. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, right. well, that's that's uh, Greenlander saga sort of comes down more on that side. They yeah. sort of show up and just start yeah. killing right away. Yeah, Eric the Red saga actually seems to suggest that they do a bit more trying to trade, and although both of them suggest, and this maybe also mm. falls in with the burning the buildings yeah. really, uh, they're very careful not to trade technology. Exactly. If they trade milk, they trade food, that kind of thing, and they probably trade the worst thing they could ever trade with milk. Right. In my opinion. Right. Because I think, in with that one, I think why the trouble started mm -hmm. was because they traded milk with people that hadn't drank milk from mm -hmm. the time that they were weaned from right. their mother. So if you haven't drank milk ever since, I don't know, when a thousand years ago when babies would have been weaned. Right. But if you haven't drank milk for perhaps 15 years, 20 years, and all of a sudden you drink a large quantity of pure goat's milk. Mm -hmm. You're not going to feel well in a few hours. Mm. I would not expect. No. Most people would not. 
So now you've had this fabulous, it's like going out and having a fabulous big piece of cheesecake mm-hmm. and being up all night sick. You know, <laughs> I paid $15 for that piece of cheesecake and now I'm right. sick. So it's, you know, I, I gave them all these mm-hmm. furs for, or fish or what have you for this, this food. And now I've been sick. Mm-hmm. I've been cheated. Or poisoned. Or poisoned. Right? I yeah. always sort of look at the normal human interactions. Mm-hmm. That's what I would think now. Yeah. I can't see why they would think any different just right. because it was right. a thousand years ago. And I really think that's why, mm-hmm. in part, the trouble started. Yeah. Because the Norse were traders. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they would have had an inclination mm-hmm. to trade, for certainly for stuff that they couldn't have gotten otherwise. Right. Well, it does seem like they're doing very limited you know, hunting and so forth. Yeah. And so bringing in the furs and so forth to yeah. trade, that makes a lot of sense. It does. Uh, and it's the Norse way of doing things. It isn't is. It, right? that it you, is. Ra- you've got something and you sort of turn that into everything you need. That's rather right. Rather than going out and doing all the work yourself. That's right. You find someone else who's already done the work and you trade with them. That's right. And you trade with them. Maybe the goods that you trade with them, unbeknownst to them, are more valuable than mm-hmm. somewhere else. So you right. bring that somewhere else. And then you, you gradually trade off. Right. You know, it's like, it's like taking, you know, a, a pedal bike and trading off to a car that people do today, <laughs> right? It's sort of that same thing, mm-hmm. right? Only it's, it's in our history. Yeah. In our, in our past. Yeah. Um, I find in, in looking at the sagas and hearing the stories about the encounters with Aboriginal mm-hmm. people, that I would expect that it would have been a lot of sort of fear and reluctance on both sides sure. in the beginning. And, the battle descriptions and you know pulling out the breasts and beating it with the sword right. and all those things. Right. I know I can see being terrified sure. of maybe seeing this woman come out and be ready to fight. Right. You know. Well, and and it does suggest that it is, and Eric the Red Saga in particular, yeah. that both sides are terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That we have this. Uh, description of this wailing weapon. Yes, that yes. The, that the Aboriginal people have. Yes, that the Vikings yeah, whistles are over their head the and, just, and and they they flee. Right. And then Freyda stands up and right. Yeah. And so both sides yes. are sort of they're not sure where they stand with the other group and they yeah. have reasons to be afraid. Oh, I I agree. And these are not the warriors, the Vikings that are coming to Lansdowne. Absolutely right. These are, I mean. Thorfinn Carl Stephanie is a tradesman. Right? He's, it, he's a, a ship, a shipping magnate. A shipping magnate with a bunch of young guys mm-hmm. who are landless, second, third sons, right. um, farming family descent who are looking to make a better life for themselves mm-hmm. and are hired on essentially as laborers, loggers, what have you mm-hmm. for a period of perhaps two or three years. Yeah. They're not trained warriors. They're not fighters. Right. I mean, I, I know that they would have had some basic understanding of how right. to protect themselves. Right. But they're probably certain, more trained than you and I. Probably more trained well, you wouldn't have to be trained <laughs> much more trained than me. But, you know, probably not great at getting mm-hmm. into a formation, forming a shield wall, being able to protect themselves right. effectively. Like a group of, you know, professional mm-hmm. warriors would have mm-hmm. been. So these are not the raiders, these are the traitors. Right. And they react like traders when the violence attacks. <laughs> they, they do. They flee <laughs> to the hills. There's a lot of running in every direction. <laughs> That's and- <laughs> right. That's right. When the first man goes down, they're off. Right. <laughs> you know? But in the old exhibit that we had, it mm-hmm. was the original school in Madison Meadows. It was just small. They turned it into a museum. Mm-hmm. And there was an audio booth. And it was a, an old picture from National Geographic from that book in 1972 that shows the Norse and the, and the Skralings mm-hmm. fighting. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the black hair waving and the painted faces and, you know, the, the, the sticks with the, the stones sticking out of them mm-hmm. and all those battle scenes. And it was an audio booth. You go in, you press the button and you listen. And it was the wailing and the fighting. It was so, so impressive at the time, you know, <laughs> this battle, right? Mm-hmm. And it had such a, it was so frightening. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a big part of that original exhibit for me. I can just barely yeah. remember what the picture looked like, mm-hmm. but yeah, this whole battle. And probably, you know, in fact, well, they wouldn't have met Aboriginal people at, at Lansom Mills mm-hmm. per se, but they may have encountered different groups. They may have encountered people coming down the coast of Labrador. Sure. And they probably encountered, well, very likely encountered people in, in the second location that decided to speak of. Uh, Hop, uh, Hope. Is this the one that you think they may have found at Baffin Island? Then? No. Um, in the sagas, it talks of, you know, Strumfjord, mm-hmm. Fjord Occurrence Leafs mm-hmm. Camp. Then right. it talks of a second site uh, called Hop, mm-hmm. further south, which was essentially oh, a, okay, a yeah. summer camp. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in the New Brunswick area, near mm-hmm. Machine area in New Brunswick. That's our sort of working theory. Um, and they would have definitely encountered mm-hmm. vast numbers of, of uh, Mi'kmaq people there. You know, and mm-hmm. they were already living there. Mm-hmm. This is their territory. Right. And I'm not sure how fond they would have been of having <laughs> a bunch of white guys show up on the shore. Right. <laughs> well, and you wonder, I mean, so far nothing's been found of that site and you wonder if they ever were able to create permanent structures down there uh, or whether they were sort of operating sleeping on the boats and you know being ready to flee at any moment or I what. think at the very at the very most they would have had a boot mm-hmm. small temporary sod shelters yeah that would just take a few days to build yeah and they, maybe not even that part of the problem would be of course that the further site you go the quicker it's been developed along the shoreline right. Right. And who's going to stop development of a you know housing complex or a road because you find sod? Right. Yeah. And well, I, and especially with modern excavating tools, who even knows when you found sod? No, exactly. Now I think too, um, we we live in a very disposable society. Mm-hmm. You're replacing your phone every two years. You know mm-hmm. your earbuds are, are worth six months' use, and you buy a new set. <laughs> So you're, oh, you you're spotted constantly, that. You're, yeah, 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 you're constantly discarding possessions mm-hmm. and replacing them. Yeah. I mean, I have hundreds of books. Yeah. That's not how these people live. Yeah. You had clothing yeah, that you precious. needed yep. and you didn't have mm-hmm. possessions that you were laying down and walking away from. Right. Because everything you had was valuable. Mm-hmm. And you're not leaving a trail of trash behind you of empty drink cans and chip bags and all right. those stuff. Things. Right. Everything you're using is organic and mm-hmm. it, it disappears easily. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing tours years ago, visitors used to ask, so why did they not leave, you know, anything else behind? And I used to say to them, so you've sold your house, you're moving. You're going to leave your couch, your VCR, tells you how old I am, <laughs> you know, your car in the garage, you're leaving all that behind because you've sold the structure. Mm-hmm. How does that make sense? You take everything you have of value mm-hmm. out with mm-hmm. you. And this is what they would have done. Even more so because, you know, the only things found on site at Lansing Meadows, a known north site, was garbage and things I lost. Right. Um, the, you know, the bronze pin mm-hmm. being one. And that was lost in a forging pit where they were uh, making nails. So he may never have realized where he had lost that bronze pin. Right. And, you know, just got buried in charcoal and, 
and it's just never found it. And that's cultural as well. I mean, it's, uh, I'm thinking of um, uh, comparing this to the site at Lindelanda in mm. England, mm. when the Romans pulled mm. back from Adrian's Wall. Mm. They left, uh, comparatively, a massive amount of material behind. Mm. But it was a bureaucratic society. Mm. You know, they produced a lot more in the way of records and paper mm. and so mm. forth for their own use. Yeah. And so when they left, they, of course, were just sort of flinging this stuff behind them. Yeah. And frankly, were a society given more to leaving a mess behind. <laughs> uh, but culturally, the, the Norse traveled light. Yep. They, they had a history as a nomadic people. They mm. were no longer at this point nomadic. That's right. But had a history of a nomadic people. Yep. And that's a culture that doesn't put a hammer down and walk away. Right? You, you know where your things are, all the more so because you don't have many of them. You don't have many of them. And I mean, the people here at, at Atlanta Meadows would not have been wealthy. Right. These are... As we said earlier, these are, for the most part, hired labor. Mm -hmm. Romanticized, like, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, the medicine was very crude, almost non existent. Um, life was very, you know, short and mm-hmm. dirty and brutal in some cases. You know, you lived in houses filled with smoke, you, you had to work extremely hard to just to keep yourself and your family fed. Uh, starvation, poverty, all that stuff was ever present threat. Is any surprise they're willing to drink bad wine? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, they're not running around with golden breastplates right. and huge winged helmets. Right. You know, they're, they're farmers, you know, trying to, mm-hmm. trying to get their family fed and trying to live just like everybody is today. Yeah. Only they're doing it, you know, in a different way. Yeah. Living on the land, living on the resources. I, I really, I really find it fascinating when I read about, you know, graves and what was offered to the, to the dead. And, mm-hmm. and I look at their houses and see how they lived. And it's it's quite fascinating. I'm not impressed by, you know, big ships and things like that. That's mm-hmm. not what fascinates me. It's how people lived, how they lived day to day, what they did to make to make each day pass successfully. Mm-hmm. And how they raised their children. How many children lived right. beyond five years old. Right. And how, how they raised them what? values and stuff like that that mm-hmm. they gave their children so it's i find that quite interesting yeah. too and of course snorri you know in the sagas that it right. talks about snorri being born right there may have been many children born as in three or four we don't know but if you but have he survived but he survived right. but if you have a crew of you know say 50 men mm-hmm. and seven or eight women mm-hmm. you may have had several children born right. that were born to slave women but they would not have been mentioned in the sagas because mm-hmm. because they're not important, right? Or may not have survived. Or may not have survived. Circumstances may not have survived. Yeah, for true various circumstances, mm-hmm. difficult or otherwise. Well, and you know this has led to that, um, which I think now is largely discredited and rightly so. Uh, this point of view that people in the Middle Ages just didn't feel strongly about their children because mm-hmm. because they were so likely to lose them. <sighs> Uh, but then you look at something like Ale Saga, mm. where uh, he's writing the poem for the loss of his sons, mm. 
right? and trying trying mm-hmm. to die because mm-hmm. of the, because of the pain that he feels over losing children. Yep. And that's not you know th- these were not people who took the loss of a child lightly. Um, I don't think you can take a loss of a no, child lightly. No, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's my bias, but especially for women, mm-hmm. I mean, you go through childbirth, you're mm-hmm. you're breastfeeding by no choice at that time, right? So you have to bond with this infant. Yeah, you know that there's a great likelihood that this infant may die. Yeah, true. All the little common childhood illnesses now that essentially it's, it's a minor visit to the doctor. But how can you not bond with them? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's natural yeah. to bond with them yeah. and to teach them what you know. And then to, especially, the, well, the males, pass them over to their father when you're about eight or so to, you know, learn what they need to know outside your household. Yeah. Now, there's that one uh, beautiful story in Bottens Dalla Saga, um, uh, Thorkel Scratcher. Uh, and Andy's going to love that I'm talking about this because it's, he's, it, Thorkel Scratcher's a favorite of his. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, Thorkel is, uh, exposed. Mm. Um, he is the, is the illegitimate child of, uh, a member of the Bottensdale mm. clan. And the wife refuses to have him in the household. Uh, and so he's exposed. Mm. But he's rescued by a great uncle, um, who is set up to do this by mm. his brother. Because his brother knows that, um, the great uncle has been suffering from berserk rage. Mm. Um, and the day he finds the child, mm. he never has another rage. Because now he knows he has to be calm, mm. he has to be present mm. for this child, mm. and it cures him of berserk rages forever. Wow. And he sort of takes on care of this baby, mm. and that immediately sort of puts him in a very calm mm. place. Mm. And it just, it, to me, it's always been this, this sort of beautiful little story mm. about the effect that babies and adults have on each other. Yeah. And that, that, that was true in the 13th mm. century, in the 10th mm. century. I, I would agree. In the 20th yeah. century. I would agree. But, yeah. And when I look at some of the, Tudor stuff in relation to Red Bay and looking at uh, working on costumes based mm-hmm. on what we know, the Basque Whalers War. Mm-hmm. And then looking at some of the publications that very, very credible publications that have been um, put forth about the same period of very wealthy families and looking how elaborately they dressed their children, the, the jewelry they made and all this stuff yeah. to fit a three-year-old. Yeah. But then comparing it to the Norse and knowing they did the same thing. I read an article a few years ago about a grave that was excavated, and it was a small female child. Mm-hmm. And she actually had little mini turtle brooches in the grave with her. Oh, wow. So as a toddler, yeah, I think they thought she was about two to three years old. As a toddler, she, she already had her little turtles and the bees. Oh, wow. So, I mean, she's valued. Yeah, of course. Because they of create course. the special ones just for her size. Right. You right. know? Yeah. So... You know, we, I find the stories fascinating mm-hmm. because they're a glimpse into our whole human past. Mm-hmm. And you look at those sagas and you can still get evidence of the fact that they're human. Yeah. They have the same sort of wants, needs, desires that we do. Yeah. And that's what I find especially of, of interest to. Yeah. They're not, um, you know, sword swinging, horned helmet barbarians, <laughs> you know. Destroy monasteries. Well, you get that too occasionally. <laughs> you know, you, you, you get the human aspect. Right. And, you know, I know um, in later years, of course... 
as Greenland's economy failed and, and, and people left and you know, they descended into a mini ice age, you know, I know that it must have been a terrible, terrible place to be. Yeah. Stuck in an ice age without the ability to build ships, without the ability to get out. Uh, having less and less and less heat, I, I went to an, an archaeological conf conference a number of years ago, and one of the things they talked about in Greenland was in the beginning of the settlement, um, the heat-loving insects were found around the kitchens, you know, mm. and the cold-loving insects were found in storage areas. Mm. And as the time progressed, the warm-loving insects got less and less and less. So the cold-loving insects progressed to the point where they were actually living in what should have been the warm areas of the building. Oh, wow. So that was one of the things that they used yeah. to indicate that these these people are suffering. Yeah. They're not yeah. even having enough firewood. Well, we've, we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast that, you know, it's really within one generation in yes. Iceland. Right? Yeah. They, they come over from Norway, yeah. a heavily forested yeah. place, mm. and they essentially try to treat Iceland like Norway. Yes. Right? So they, they chop down all the trees they can find <laughs> to right. build their buildings. They That's begin right. by building these very wood-based buildings. Yeah. They're building wood-based structures all over the place. Yep. Yeah. Within one generation, they go from probably something like 30 to 60% forested mm. to 1% forested. That's right. And it stays that way. That's right. Uh, and so even by the, the 10th century, it is in uh, Vatnsdala saga, there's a, 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 a moment when Ingemund is uh, moving over to Iceland and he visits King Harald and Harald gives him a ship filled with lumber mm. as a parting gift. And it's clearly, it's a princely gift, right? I mean, not only the ship, yeah. but the lumber. Yeah. Right, is a massive, and even though the saga writer is trying to tell us about Iceland as the sort of land of milk and honey yeah. at this time, the fact that that's the gift you give him suggests that already we're looking at a place where the, the wood is hard to come by. Deforest it right and, away. Yep. And yeah. you do. You end up, especially then you get into the mini ice age yep. in the 30th, 40th century. Yep. And boy, it must have been difficult. It ha And then volcanic activity on top of it all. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, it had to be... Especially in the later years when I started, it had to be yeah. uh, in Greenland's right? It had to be mm -hmm. a, a terrible way to live. Yeah. This this farmer mm -hmm. lifestyle that you, mm -hmm. you're built to live, you, you can't live that lifestyle in Greenland. Right. And I've always found it fascinating. And I, again, it, it, it may just be, you know, it, it may not um, actually bear out in, in evidence, but I've always found it fascinating that the Norse in Greenland didn't learn from the Aboriginal people living there. Mm -hmm. And I've always found, you know, and again, true conversations with various specialists and stuff I've come across. The theory that was, you know, always sort of discussed was the fact that the Norse were Christian and the Christian church would have discouraged them from being involved with non-Christians in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So they may not have been able to learn the hunting techniques that the Aboriginal people were using because they would have not had a right. lot of contact with them. Right, because they convert in the first generation. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And in Greenland, mm -hmm. of course, it's the ring seal. So the Aboriginal people are hunting them through the, the ice. Mm -hmm. And it's a different type of hunting technique. You have to, you know, you have to learn that. Yeah. So it's it's a whole different way of living. Well, and we know, I mean, even just looking at, again, you know, I'm always going to go back to the sagas. Um you look at Eric the Red Saga, mm. and when Leaf uh, accidentally ends up in the New World, right? mm. because in, in yeah. Eric the Red Saga, it's much more sort of in, in, yeah. in yeah, it's planned. Yeah, um, 
but he gets back to Greenland, and yeah. he's there to convert people. Yeah. He's been sent by Olaf Tryggvason to right. convert the Greenlanders. That's right. And nobody wants to talk to him about conversion. No. They want to talk about this land full of food. He's just <laughs> yes, that's right. Because they're already kind of, you know, they're already living hand to mouth. Yeah, that's right. We, you, you found a place with food, and you came back. <laughs> <laughs> to hear? Show us where that is, <laughs> and we will convert to whatever you want. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But then from a very early period, it was yeah. clear that they were struggling. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was. Um, and that it was always going to be, at best, mm-hmm. a very um, a very poor existence. <laughs> I mean, Eric made, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in Newfoundland, we have a saying. <laughs> and it's Eric made a rod with his own ass. <laughs> <laughs> Through his temper, Eric uh-huh. the Red created a situation where his family could not survive. Yeah. He ran out of Europe. He ran out of Europe to fight in. He ran out of Europe to fight in. Exactly. Yep. And he ended up going to Greenland. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think it was a con job at calling it Greenland, because Greenland is very, very green. Mm-hmm. But you can't really live a European lifestyle there right. without outside support. Right. You know, and I often said to people, you know, North Star come to Lands and Meadows when they were new in Greenland. Mm-hmm. They'd only been there for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. So really, they were still setting up their, their Greenland colony. Right. And I think at that point, they may have had an inkling that things are not going to go well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're, you're fighting on, you're saying, no, we're going to get resources, we're going to make this better, and all this stuff. So, so they started coming to Lands and Meadows when they were pretty isolated. Before they became part of the you know, European Trading Union for that time mm-hmm. period. And they got the main resources they needed. Was essentially was wood. Fur and right. all that stuff. Right. That was well and good. But wood really was what you needed. Yeah. To build houses, to build ships, to, for everything. You know, it's the plastic of a thousand years ago mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, they stopped coming because eventually all the Europeans started to realize Greenland has these Exotic northern northern goods to offer, you mm-hmm. know, narwhal tusks, you know, unicorn horn kind of thing, mm-hmm. and the furs and the and you know the polar bears and all those things. So for a while, yeah. they had walrus hide rope. You know, oh. <laughs> I used to tell visitors years ago, anybody you know who sails knows walrus hide rope is the best rope you could get. So <laughs> of course Greenland could produce that, mm-hmm. and you had all these traders coming into Greenland, bringing wood, bringing spices, news from home, all these other things mm-hmm. that you could not get in Lansing Meadows or North America as such. Right. And in turn, the Greenlanders were producing very valuable goods that they could, right. their economy right. and their land. But when that ice age started, and the traders couldn't get in. You can't live on polar bear. Right. Or walrus hide <laughs> rope. You know, that's no substitute yep. for wood. Yeah. Or iron. Yeah. Yeah. And um Yeah, that was the end of it. That was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, within five hundred years. But I think that's the key point is that you know, it wasn't easy at any point during those five hundred years. It just you know, they they'd stuck it out by God. They stuck it out. And, yeah. Uh really I don't think they really had any choice. Right. It's not as if they could have called Iceland and said, Okay, we're ready to come home now. Right. Come and get us. Well by the fifteenth century Iceland's not having a great time either. No. And so what do you do? You can't mm-hmm. get off Greenland. Right. You're not having any any reliable contact with the outside world. Mm-hmm. You're stuck where you're stuck. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's it. It's 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 live how you can live. Mm-hmm.
also wanted to ask you about just what's happening with the site right now and in the future. What are the what are the plans? I mean, so right now, it's it's at a kind of point of you feel like you've got a pretty good sense of what the building materials are, what the site looked like. It sounds mm. like you're still expanding on the build the buildings that you're putting together mm. on the site. Mm. Uh, what's the future of the site? Are there any plans for more digs, or you feel like that's we're now in the phase of of restoration? The archaeologist itself, I think, we can consider pretty much complete. Mm-hmm. The site is about 90% excavated. Okay. So that's the, it's the house sites and the area out around. Mm-hmm. So we've learned about um, how the buildings were built, the f- general functions of each room. Um, we know where wood planking was. We know where benches were. And we, we know we have evidence of storage and things like that from barrel rim impressions and things left in the floor. Mm-hmm. And we know where the boat repair area was because, of course, when we excavated, we found you know, over 2,000 pieces of wood. Yeah. Um, as for reconstructions, I don't know. The, the, the door's not shut there. Yeah. I mean, we're currently on a project now to repair the ones we have. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a continual thing. Right. It's, 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 you know, it's, you know, every lovely lady needs occasional lift and this <laughs> is what we're doing. We may build more in the, fu- in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll see. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a very active site. I mean, it's yeah. so popular with families coming in, with Viking enthusiasts, with just, we get so many people who come in and say, my ancestors might have been here. Mm-hmm. We get so many people that are descended from, you know, uh, Norwegian or Swedish immigrants to the United States. Right. We talk about their grandfather had a chest that looks just like that. Okay. You know? And I, oh, I can remember my grandmother, these elderly ladies. I remember my grandmother doing that because the, some of the, the ladies do no bending, which is the one needle knitting. Mm-hmm. I remember my grandmother doing that. Can you teach me how to do that? So it's a real connection to their family yeah. and their ancestry. Right. And I don't know if, I mean, I, I can't see all the sites sort of having that same sort of connection. Mm-hmm. That Lance Mills does, because of course Lance Mills is the only Viking site in North America. Right, right. And you get a lot of people coming in that want to explore that part of their heritage. Yeah. We can fuss and fight and bother about our, our moments of life, mm-hmm. but there's that cycle of life repeats itself over and over again, no matter mm-hmm. how much we struggle. Well, isn't that, isn't that what something like Lonson Meadows shows people yeah. too? Right, that yeah. that you can have the sort of settlement that exists for one moment in time. Yes. Uh, and and yet can be this hugely important. I mean, think about the international importance of the yes. site. Mm-hmm. But so in your in your father's lifetime, it goes from being the old Indian camp to a UNESCO World, World Heritage Site. Exactly, right from uh, our pasture land it was it was a pasture. Yeah. Uh, my great grandmother was a bit of a freightist, <laughs> and nobody was allowed to go through the pasture land. So mm-hmm. that pro- and probably in big part saved it from mm-hmm. anything because it was valuable pasture grazing land. And uh, it went from that to being a, a, a big source of employment for people when the Ingsteads came. Sure. Another source of employment when the uh, Department of Indian and Northern Affairs came, mm-hmm. uh, which eventually became Parks Canada. And still, a continued source of employment, plus UNESCO World Heritage Site, you know, 30-plus right. thousand visitors come to the site a year. Wow. And it's meant a major, major business for the bed and breakfast, the hotels, the restaurants, you know, there's all kinds of spinoff uh, economic benefits from it. Right. From a little field in a place called Lance Meadows <laughs> that now has about 21 people. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. 
Thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. This has been lovely. <laughs> Thank you. So that was John's conversation with Loretta Decker, Parks Canada officer and Lonsa Meadows expert. Uh, I once again want to thank Loretta, uh, as well as her colleagues at Parks Canada, uh, Jane Brewer, Dale Wells, Kim Vokey, and some other people whose names I'm certainly forgetting at the moment. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet them all, and I hope to run into some of them again next time I make it up to the site. Maybe I'll make the trip with you next time. I mean, visiting yeah. Lonsa Meadows is very, very high on my list of places to visit in the coming years. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, and I'd also like to give a quick thanks to my wife, Wendy, who helped me in the initial stages of editing this interview. She put a lot of time in and deserves some praise for helping me work out the structure of the interview and acting as my sounding board with the various edits that I made afterwards. Uh, and we also owe a special thanks to Andres Camposano and his band Andanza for the use of the song Runatal at the start of this episode. Yes, um, and if you like the song, uh, you can follow the link provided on our website to the song and Andanza's music. This was my first foray into asking for permission to use the song, and I think it went <laughs> exceedingly well. Where does all the other music for this episode come from? Where does all your music come from? Well, well, most of the stuff in this one is just snippets of songs I had on my computer from Creative Commons websites and a few other odds and ends. Um, I tried to stick within fair use uh, time links. But I, I should note that most of the music we use in our podcast comes from the Creative Commons website by Kevin McLeod called Incompetech.com. Mm. Now, I've, I've usually got that info built into the episode MP3s, as I'm supposed to, but we should start acknowledging what we're using a bit more regularly and including links. Well, that would be the responsible and probably the legal thing to do. Yeah, I thought so. So here we go. <laughs> now, there's uh, there's a lot of good stuff on that site. So I, like I said, I'm going to provide a link to anyone uh, who's interested in mining it for their own projects. Okay. Uh, I think that wraps up our saga brief. Indeed it does. Right, we'll be back in a few weeks with our judgments for the saga of the Greenlanders. Now, I wonder if you'll rate this one as high as you did uh, Eric the Red Saga. Yeah, I wonder who either one of us can possibly pick for a thing man. <laughs> it is slim pickings in the Greenlander Saga. It sure is. Uh, uh, but uh, we will all have to wait until next time to find out who has what it takes to join our thing man. So until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. So is Ale your favorite? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I kind of got that impression. Because <laughs> every woman loves a bad boy, I guess. <laughs>